This is Sarah Bordeaux, and you are listening to PodSAM, the podcast channel of SAM Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. Thank you for your patience while we took a little trade show season hiatus, but we are back with the final two episodes of this year's Summit Series. On this episode, we are talking risk management with Summit Series mentors Kim Locke, Vice President of Lake Louise, Alberta, Rich Berkeley, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Business Development for Aspen Skiing Company, and Nadia Guerrero, who at the time of this conversation was the Vice President and General Manager for North Star California, but is now Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Beaver Creek Resort in Colorado. Risk management is key in ski industry operations, but program sponsor Tim Barnhorst of Mountain Guard says it best. And the one thing I'd say about risk management is that it's it's an enterprise-wide type of thing. Uh, it applies to every department, whether it's marketing, whether it's F&B or mountain ops. Um, you can find risk management in every aspect of operations at the ski areas. As with our other episodes, this audio is derived from actual conference calls. So there's the typical phone interference, but it's totally worth it. And with that, we'll hand it off to Paul Tallner of High Peaks Group to kick us off. I would love to uh, sort of reflect back on uh, some words that Tim just said in his brief introduction about the, you know, uh, succession planning and, um, uh, you know, paying it forward as, as these conversations have shown over the past year and a half or so. Uh, it's these stories of, of when mentors have been you know, in the early stages of their leadership career, sharing stories about the things that uh, helped um, help them become effective uh, leaders in the industry is the purpose and point of the, the of today's conversation. And we'll actually kick it off there uh, with with a question related to risk management. So we'll take this in order. We'll start with Kim and then go to Rich and then Nadia. This question will be for all three of you. Um, I'd love for each of you to sh- to sort of put yourself back in the uh, time when you were earlier in your career, about the time when these mentees are currently in their careers, right? Um, maybe it was your first leadership experience or maybe you know your, your first time with significant responsibility in your ski area. Think back to that time and then tell us a story about when you realized or learned uh, either to identify risk or that it was a, a significant and serious part of your role. Uh, so Kim, do you want to take it away? When did it when did it sort of strike you and sort of sink in for you? Sure. Well, my background is I'm a lawyer. So I by background am kind of trained to be always cognizant of risk. And so I think bringing that to a ski area context, it um it probably really hit home for me when we had uh, an accident in a parking lot, actually, and it was a fairly minor um, injury. It was a guest who slipped and broke his leg, and at the time, it didn't really seem like it would be anything. And afterwards, uh, it kind of developed into a lot more than we had thought. Uh, the injury was a little bit more severe than originally thought. And this gentleman had to be off work for quite some time. And it turned into a, a larger claim. And because it wasn't on the mountain, we couldn't really rely on a waiver defense. Uh, this guest had not purchased a ticket. Uh, and he was uh, he was not a season pass holder, so he hadn't signed any kind of a waiver. So we're in a position where we have to defend this claim, and uh, our investigation was perhaps not as fulsome as it would have been had it been an on-hill accident, simply because of the fact that it didn't really look like anything big at the time, and uh, and it was in the parking lot, so you know people wanted to get back onto the hill into the area where you know most of the risk had been identified. So, because of the fact that uh, we could have done a little bit more thorough of an investigation, and in this particular incident, what was lacking was uh, photographs 
of the surrounding area. There were a bunch of photographs of where the individual had fallen, but not necessarily photographs of the surrounding area. And what this gentleman ended up uh, saying after the fact is that he had to cross over this snowbank that he walked over and which ultimately he tripped on. He said he had to cross over the snowbank because the surrounding area was icy and dangerous to walk on. And so our witness statements at the time said, you know what, the parking lot was in normal shape and there weren't any big patches of ice, but uh, we hadn't had photographs of the area. And so that ended up getting us uh, in the end and we had to make a little bit of a settlement offer to this guy. So I guess it, it hit home that you really have to be cognizant of risks everywhere. And it's not only the very obvious risks that can be harmful to your organization. It's little things that, uh, that can come back and get you that nobody would have necessarily anticipated. Yeah, I um, have a very different non-specific one, but um, the first time I looked at a P&L and I was responsible for a P&L is the kind of the breathtaking um, financial cost of workers' comp. And that, when I you know uh, um, had my first operating division, I it was I was stunned at how many hundreds of thousands of dollars and in certain cases millions we were spending um, on on these cases, and this is now oh, I'm going to say let's see it'd be in the mid 90s. Um, we then created a task force and started systemically um, working on reducing risk wherever we could, identifying it, reducing it, and then more importantly, and this is the hardest thing to do, is creating a culture where um, people really were active in spotting risk and then um, minimizing it or eliminating it themselves. And over the years, we've actually managed, even to this day, our workers' comp costs are far lower than they were 25 years ago. Since we've got so many great questions from our mentees, maybe we can throw it out to our mentees uh, to ask some, some questions. I know, uh, Hunter, you had, a, you had a good question. I guess this can be for all three of our, of our mentors here. Uh, uh, and we can take it in the same order, Kim, Rich, then Nadia, if we're able to get Nadia back. Um, Hunter, do you want to go ahead and ask your question to the mentors? Yeah, absolutely. So my question is, um, what do you see as um, a very often overlooked area for risk in your ski areas and, and the industry as a whole? Uh, sometimes, I think for, for us, uh, just sort of relating to my previous little anecdote, Sometimes an overlooked area at, at our ski area is the base area and, uh, and inside because everybody is so focused on minimizing risk out on the mountain and the extent of the risk is so much greater with ski-related injuries rather than with slip and fall that uh, it's only natural for people to prioritize risk reduction and risk elimination outside, but uh, there are definitely things that need to be done inside as well and then around the base area outside. So that's uh, an easy place to, to overlook, but it's just as important to kind of look at, look at those areas as well. Okay, so when I started at North Star, I started as the Director of Events and Conference Services. So I was in charge of kind of everything that we considered outside of normal business operations. And it, speaks a little bit to what Kim was saying, but um, you know we can get pretty focused on what goes on in the hill and um, all of our skiing operations, but I was in charge of running all of our events also in the village. And so I would say I was pretty aware of risk right away um, in certain areas. So the, the risk of, if we're having an outdoor event in the summer, the risk of weather was always a thing. So we had to you know, if we had sold tickets and things like that, we always had to have backup plans. Same things with weddings. You know, if we have weddings, we had to have backup plans um, because it was always a big risk. But one event in particular that we had one summer, we do a big beer fest and bluegrass event. And so people buy tickets, they listen to bluegrass music, and then they're drinking beer um, all day. And so, you know, we went, we would go through the, the village and the setup and make sure that any cords had you know, cord covers over them, you know, for speakers and things like that, um, making sure that all the walking areas were safe. But we had this one woman in particular who maybe had had a little bit too much beer to drink that day and was wearing some 
shoes that were a little bit harder to walk in and she um she was walking into the rink area and she tripped and i don't even think she really tripped on anything other than maybe just the ground um but one of the the things that we had overlooked was actually having medical on site in the village available we have a medical clinic in the village but we didn't have a medical tent at the event that year and so that was a pretty quick lesson and moving forward from then on we always had a medical tent at every event that we had in the village which you know happened to be a lot of the events that we have are in the summer so they're not even during regular ski operations uh, because we have a full-time year-round village so um, there was that and then I think a piece of risk that goes along with some of that stuff is um, the reputational risk right so the risk that can be um, of, of your reputation if you know if someone does get get hurt or someone um, you know and especially with social media these days they can go on and pretty quickly um, tell people that they had a bad time at your event because they tripped and fell and got hurt and we didn't have medical attention right then and there so I think those types of things and what I would say to answer the question of the mentee is that yeah those overlooked areas those areas where um, that are outside of the normal business operations for us it's events in the summer we do food and wine events we do things that are you know maybe not um, the things that we do every day especially in the winter so those are the ones that we, we pay extra special attention to and make sure we're we're covering all of our bases from a from a risk standpoint for employees and guests um, I agree with uh, Kim that parking lots sidewalks and those overlooked areas are now consistently some of our biggest problems um, we have remote ticket sales where the ticket seller has to walk um, we're in a town so with city blocks but they're very snowy and icy and some of them have steep hills and that has become a real challenge we actually now issue um, kind of crampon type grippers so that they can walk safely back and forth between locker rooms and sites so those areas that you don't normally focus on because our avalanche control we are very tight on and we don't have any issues our lift maintenance and lockout tagout we have protocols it's the areas that we don't necessarily focus on um, because we don't think there's as much risk there that are really presenting challenges we also have um, a, a large number of hospitality our hotels and our food and beverage they're not necessarily as um, high dollar per cost but there's so many of them and each one has to be managed and come to conclusion and then filed with the state so you run into significant risks on relatively small you know bumped heads cuts um, in the kitchens and strained backs moving stuff that um, add up very quickly and then the one that we spend the most time looking at and, it, and we haven't really figured out how to solve it because it is so dangerous we do we're very aware of it but it also um, is snowmaking at night um, especially early season and the pressure to produce snow um, for the for the teams especially as an opening day is approaching plus the night plus the marginal conditions with half snow half dirt half grass a lot of ice um, and then pitch black um, creates huge challenges what we did several years ago is we really made an effort to retain and bring back snowmakers and not have new hires we were finding that our our new employees were um, getting injured at a significantly higher rate at 200% more than our returning employees. We then incentivized the teams also to um, work to make sure that they were operating as safely as they could, you know, with the high pressures for water and air um, and then moving heavy equipment. And we managed to, in the last five years, reduce it. I think we've had one relatively minor claim in the last five years, and that is strictly by bringing back returning employees that are experienced with these conditions and then pairing them with the new hires if we did have any. But we actually have really reduced the actual number of new hires as well. And that has been extremely effective, but I can't overstate how dangerous that job is. Rich, just to continue the momentum, um, Greg Valero had a question uh, that I thought would be appropriate for, for you to take the first crack at. Uh, Greg, why don't you go ahead and ask Rich your question? How do you go about determining what is considered an acceptable risk in the industry? That is a, a great question because I, I deal with it all the time. And let me give you an example. Um, a closing day last year on Aspen Mountain, um, our events team asked if they could build a slip and slide. 
Um, so this would be at 11,200 feet, cut into snow, lined with plastic, run through water and soap, and that was going to be an end-of-season kind of event. Um, I don't know if you know, slip and slides create the most number of paralysis neck injuries in the United States every year, and people jumping onto them. So our legal team flipped out, and which is what they're supposed to do, of course. And so we went back and we looked like, what, how does this play out and could we manage it? And we put some places, uh, some things in place. First, we designed what we believed was the most benign. We monitored alcohol consumption, which was heavily prevalent at this party, but we made sure that the people that were actually using it, we did not do a waiver, believe it or not. We um, were trying to use a statutory protection under Colorado's Secure Safety Act. And um, I managed to kind of I guess I said, sell my soul to the legal team that there would be no issues. And it was successful. And so that was, a I would consider, a fairly high risk, but an incredible amount of attention was paid to it. The event went off beautifully. And so the way I'm, I, I would um, look at it is what you're paying attention to generally will um, move in a direction that you want. So as long as you're really monitoring it and putting an effort into it, you'll have success in reducing the risk, the acceptable risk. How about, and then taking the other way, when I talked about, you know, walking to um, a ticket office that's four blocks up the mountain on city streets that are icy and snow-packed, and we don't really, accept is that an acceptable risk? We, we have accepted it right now, but I would say, no, it's not. We should be doing something different. We should be either providing transportation, we should be giving them equipment that can get them there, or maybe even looking at moving that station. And so, where you're paying attention, I think, is acceptable, and where you're not, that'll catch you by surprise, is unacceptable. Yeah, it is a great question because it's something that we deal with all the time. Uh, it is a bit of a judgment call often, and sometimes it's moving targets too. Um, I mean, first, turning your mind, um, as has been mentioned, to you know what can go wrong. Just really try to think about all possible worst case scenarios and and then it's a bit of an analysis i think so what can go wrong what's the worst case scenario you know what's the likelihood of that happening and if it's you know a fairly high likelihood obviously you're not going to want to have the event or you're going to want to tone it down or you're going to want to ha have to modify it but if it is a really uh remote possibility of a worst case scenario happening that uh, can put you at a very high risk, then that's where the judgment call comes in. And I mean, as a ski industry, I think we are uh, more risk tolerant than a lot of industries, just based on what we do and skiing being uh, considered by many to be inherently dangerous. So you have to sort of also, I think, lend that eye to things. We are in a somewhat dangerous uh, industry and it's a little bit of a, a judgment call in terms of how much risk you're willing to accept in any given activity or event uh, and then minimizing those risks to to the extent that you can. But I think an, an analysis and uh, putting people's heads together and brainstorming and just saying, you know, okay, let's let's think this through from every possible scenario and uh, and what what could go wrong and thinking about things beforehand can really help to reduce the risk. Thanks, Kim. Really appreciate it. Um, Nadia, would you like to chime in on this one as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with um, both of those comments, Rich and Kim. I think um, one of the things that we also look at is is a couple different things when looking at risk, right, is, yeah, exactly what could go wrong and, and pulling in, luckily in the ski industry, and I think at all of our resorts, probably we have a lot of people with a lot of experience. Um, and so we're able to sort of, you know, tap into that and get different ideas and, and be able to usually find someone who's maybe done something like this before, whether it be an event or something else, and rely on that experience and, and what, you know, what things do we put in place um, the other thing we really look at is, yeah, where can we eliminate risk? Um, and Rich kind of mentioned this, but for us, one of the things is um, a lot of our employees to get to their various posts or their various locations where they're working for the day, they either ski or snowboard. And 
for us in Tahoe and especially at Northstar, we we tend to get um, a lot of employees that don't have a lot of skiing or riding experience, and especially we find this with some of our international students that come over, and so we look a lot at how do we how do we eliminate the risk. In other words, how do we get people to their job sites um, without skiing or riding? And and we've done this in a couple different places, not four blocks up the city street, but having to drive through the valley. So we had some lift operators that need to be at uh, Lookout Mountain, so Marta's Camp Express. And that's some challenging terrain to ski over to or snowboard over to and, and get down. And the conditions in the past several years have been challenging in Tahoe. And so we we took the risk off the table and we now do drive them all the way around. They drive to work and, and back from work. And so that's that's a big part of it for us is eliminating the risk. And then secondly, I would say when we're looking at risk is also just that full benefit analysis. So what are the what are the possible benefits to from taking the risk? Because I think that's another piece that you need to be pretty aware of. So not just what what could go wrong, but what could also go right here, what could go well. The PodSAM conversation continues after we thank PodSAM and Summit Series partner, Mountain Guard. How many skier visits are you doing? 5,000? 5 million? I'm going to guess it's somewhere in between. Specializing exclusively in insuring the ski industry since 1962, Mountain Guard has become the largest writer of ski resort insurance in North America. No matter your size, your resort needs the expertise and experience that Mountain Guard can provide. Head on over to mountainguard.com where you'll be able to make quick contact with their eastern or western experts. Customers know them as Tim Barnhorst, Tim Hendrickson, and Bo Adams. www.mountainguard.com it sort of feels like there's a, you know, the uh, we're kind of coming up against this uh, art and science of risk management, right? So there's a little bit of each required to assess risk. And uh, Megan has a question that I think, you know, probably be follow exactly what you were talking about, Nadia. Uh, and then, uh, so Megan, why don't you uh, ask your question of Nadia? And then, of course, um, Kim and Rich can chime in as well. How do you find the balance between managing risk and maintaining a positive guest experience. Well, I think I think first and foremost we look at a positive guest experience as a is a safe experience. Um, you know, a, a guest can't have a positive experience or a good experience if they don't feel safe and and taken care of and like we're taking all of the precautions to make sure that they are safe on the hill, you know. Again, so similar to our employees, a lot of our we get it, we get a lot of those lower level guests as well, beginners, intermediates, people coming here to learn um, because we don't have uh, as challenging a train as as some of the neighboring resorts. And so, I think for us, we're very focused on making sure that the guests feel as though they are being taken care of and that that they are um, that that it's safe. And so, one of the ways that we do it is, you know, if, if knowing our guests and knowing that that the level that we normally see if there's a run like particularly right now where we're looking at expanding terrain um, we've gotten some snow we've gotten some favorable snow making temps uh, our mountain is not 100 percent open so we're looking at expanding terrain and one of the one of the tensions that we experience is our guests would like us to expand terrain and open runs sometimes sooner than we would like to and and some of that is whether the conditions are are good um, and, and we've covered all the things that we have to cover out here in Tahoe like manzanita and rocks and sticks and things like that um, as well as you know all of the marking and padding and rope lines that we need to set up and so I think for us it's a matter of communication we try to communicate very proactively with our guests and, and make sure that they know a lot of the things that we're doing or something that may be perceived as a takeaway or um, you know, something that upsets them, that there's there's a good reason for it. And probably 90% of the time is, is a, there's a safety reason. So I agree. And any guest that hurt is hurt is not having a positive experience. And we um, are fairly well protected from a terrain-based perspective um, statutorily. What we do is we focus quite a bit, though, on education. We actually have an open boundary, which means that guests can leave the ski resort 
ski back country and then ski back in um, for all four of our mountains, which is fairly unusual in the industry. And we've looked at that over the course of years as to whether or not that was uh, beneficial or uh, creating a, an on that, um, on higher risk hazard than uh, we should be accepting. Um, that said, then, when we're looking at terrain, um, we're probably more aggressive because of the statutory progressing than we would be ordinarily, um, especially early season. We um, have, we call it directed skiing, where we use our guests, mostly locals on passes, to compact snow in certain areas, um, opening runs on either segments or opening the whole run as a, by itself so that we can uh, um, achieve the snow safety for us that we're looking for. And, um, you know, it's, in a, it's, a, it's a very, very fine line, I guess. And what I would say is that if we do it, and we've been doing it for many years, and we don't have um, any injuries, we consider it an acceptable level of risk. If it was the other way and we were, you know, injuring five or six people every time we did this, then I would say that we would probably stop doing it. And so we, what we do is we watch where our um, real injuries to guests and to employees occur and then try and focus on that. And that is, um, which is creates that one where if you have the, the surprise that comes in from somewhere that you didn't expect um, and that you haven't seen before, that, that creates some challenges. But for the most part, um, our, we've been doing this you know, for a long time and our practices seem to be working so that we can minimize um, injuries to guests. Yeah, great comments by Rich and Nadia. And uh, knowing your jurisdiction, I think, is key. So Rich mentioned that uh, in Colorado, they're statutorily protected. So can perhaps be a little bit more aggressive on terrain openings early season than maybe some of us in other jurisdictions can be. So I, I do think there is definitely a trade-off between risk and a positive guest experience. And just kind of building on the discussion of terrain opening, we actually were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, trying to figure out whether to open uh, another area of the mountain or wait for another snowfall. And we decided to open it. Uh, of course, it was signed uh, very well for early season conditions and areas that were roped off, uh, you know, that, uh, that needed to be roped off. And we had everything in place to try to minimize the risk. But looking at the flip side, there's also risk in concentrating all your guests on a smaller area. So we said, yeah, you know what, we might have um, injuries in this this new terrain that we are going to open, but we'll sign it well, you know, we'll communicate well with the guests. And then, you know, even by doing that, we minimize risk on other areas of the mountain that uh, we might have had more collisions, for instance, if guests weren't spread out. So a lot of it is weighing and balancing um, between different risks sometimes and I think determining um, you know where where the most risk lies and just like um, like you mentioned Paul it's a bit of an art and a science uh, but certainly safety for everyone guests and staff needs to be the key driver and uh, and when you have a, a safe environment then you're going to have a positive guest experience on the whole I think and let me interject yeah. Um, yeah, Open Highlands early last last weekend. A good portion of our decision to do that was to spread skiers out. Exactly what uh, I was talking about, where we didn't, um, so we had a fewer, you know, less congestion on Aspen Mountain. We had now two mountains open, and that was exactly the reason why. We talked a little bit about the guest experience, and and uh, we have a question. Uh, Colin has a really good question that that sort of focuses the attention a little bit more on the employee experience. Uh, Colin, do you want to ask your question of Kim? Most employee employees are focused on compliance to rules, procedures, and uh, protocols, but the best risk management comes from employees looking out for one another. How do you foster a sense of commitment to safety in your employees? So that's a great question, and I think that to have a, a culture of safety, you really have to do a lot of a lot of work on fostering that that culture and getting employees to look out for each other. And 
communication. I think Nadia mentioned before that communication is really, really important. And it's important also from uh, an internal standpoint as well. So safety meetings, safety committees, always talking about safety and and not making it something that is taboo to talk about, but making it something that is welcome to talk about. So talk about near misses, talk about what could have been done, and you know ask ask around as well. Ask where um, where employees are having concerns, and just make make sure that everybody really knows that it's welcome for people to bring their concerns up to their supervisors or their managers. And uh, com yeah, communication is is what it's all about, I think, and really welcoming uh, comments and concerns from people. Thanks. That is a, that is a great question, and, and uh, I wouldn't be completely honest if I didn't tell you that this is some, not something I think I, – I think about this every day. This is something that I think about every day. It, it's the one thing that, um, you know, employee safety and keeping employees safe and, and – and and doing our best as a leadership team to make sure that employees leave work the same way they showed up that day. Um, it's it's probably one of the things that keeps me up at night. And I think you know Kim reiterated communication. That's a big piece of it. We talk about it at every meeting. Um, you know we sort of take the approach that every meeting is actually a safety meeting. Um, and so you know I, we talk about it at our senior leadership team meeting weekly, we talk about it at our managers meetings, we talk about it at our department meetings, and so, um, and then yes, talking about what has happened and things like that, and then what Kim started to talk about a little bit is so that if you, you know, if you see something, so that risk assessment piece, so any one of our employees, if they see something, that they're willing to raise that up, but then the next step of that is we have to do something about it, right? There has to be action that's, that's taken um, to either correct the problem, fix it, um, or rectify the unsafe situation. I think you know, one of the things is I actually just talk about it. I talk about a lot to my, my managers and my management team. I talk about, one, that they first have to take care of themselves, um, that self-care is incredibly important, and making sure they get enough rest and food and water and summer sunscreen and things like that so they first take care of themselves so that they can then take care of each other and look out for each other. Um, you know, we talk about a lot of – there's a lot of different sort of – strategies and tactics that we employ from, you know, everything from safety timeouts and um, training and things like that. But it's, uh, you know, I think this one, it's a great question. And I think there's a lot of different things that you have to do in order to create a positive safety culture and really an interdependent safety culture, which I think is what you're talking about, one where employees are not only looking out for themselves, but they're looking out for their fellow teammates. Rich? How does it work where you are? Several years ago, what we started doing was incentivizing teams for safety. And the two big ones were patrol um, and ski school. And we weren't allowed to penalize or reward an individual, but our legal team and HR teams felt that we could, or at least I got it through, the, uh, those teams um, incentivized groups. And we would share in any positive savings that we had year over year or on a floating five-year average. And that was very effective. And then the second thing we did within that was we showed um, what happens when an employee gets injured from the employee's perspective and how negative it was to their lifestyle, their mountain, you know, culture. And so our education and our training now almost focuses 100% on the individual um, with the incentive in place. So the team has a, an incentive and then the individual uh, understands that if they're injured, they're off snow, they probably have some long-term repercussions, they have to, um, you know, light duty work, return to work, um, they have to be cleared to get back on, so all these things that kind of cascade down from that. Um, it's very difficult, it's probably the hardest thing in a company to create a culture of safety, um, but we've certainly moved in that direction. And then, then we look at um, individual tasks. And um, years ago, uh, when patrols were setting up the mountains, they would um, ski around with power pads. And I was doing the job with them one time, and, I, and it was one of the hardest things to do because you're skiing, the pads are floating in the air with straps everywhere. And I, was, I realized that this was a very dangerous activity. 
and we didn't have an incident, but I was thinking to myself, this is not, something's going to happen here. Um, also, when you, um, if you drop one and it starts sliding downhill, it becomes a missile. So we got, I got the groups together and I said, God, I, you know, I'm working with you guys and I feel this is horrible. Is that, am I missing something here? Is this an easy, and they're like, that's the worst thing we do. And everyone's in concurrence. So I said, well, let's, how else can we do this? And so what we did was we got a bed cat and now we do not ski pads anywhere. We just pile up a bed cat and drive the cat tower to tower and eliminated that whole function. Not only did that improve morale, it showed them that we, you know, we cared about them. Um, and it really went a long way for them accepting like responsibility, like something can change if we see something that is what we consider unsafe or is very difficult to do. If we mention it, management will respond and, and make changes. One thing I'll add to that um, from my perspective, working with organizations outside of the ski industry is that, you know, when I when I did some work for British Petroleum after the Gulf of Mexico incident, um, they were trying to create a culture, a safety culture as well. Obviously, a very, very challenging. Uh, cha they had a huge incentive, obviously, because they just, just had a disaster. But what we ended up uh, working on was creating a speak up culture where people could actually feel safe and comfortable um, telling others what's going on that might not be the safest thing happening. So that's another cultural element that can be added to the to the mix um, as well. We'll be right back after we thank PodSAM and Summit Series partner, Leitner Palma. Leitner Palma of America moves people. Literally, that's what they do, move people. They offer a complete line of cable transport systems from surface lifts to chair lifts to gondolas. Leitner Palma can design, engineer, manufacture, and maintain the transportation systems that get you to the top. Check out leitner-palma.com and touch base with the lift experts on their team. www.leitner-palma.com. The next question from Eric really gives uh, our mentors an opportunity to go a little bit deeper into uh, into what we were just talking about. Um, not just necessarily uh, a sense of you know, talking about the culture, but just some of the ways you do it. So uh, we'll start with Kim, then go to Nadia, then Rich. But uh, Eric. Could you uh, share your question with our mentors, please? How have you leveraged training programs, preparation, and policy implementation to minimize the risk factors when making decisions in operations, snowmaking, technology, asset development, planning, et cetera? Uh, yeah, from our perspective, training programs are, are super important. What we have done is we've moved to online training. And what that allows us to do is uh, keep a very good tab on who's had what training and what training they've had. And it allows us to make sure that our training is very consistent uh, throughout not only the same department, but throughout other departments as well. So I think you know, training is so crucial and so essential. We actually had an employee um, fall off of a lift uh, a bit of extenuating circumstances as to why that happened but um, what we did is we uh, that's not something that we had anticipated would ever happen so we had to really go back and say okay how did this happen um, how could an employee fall off the lift and uh, we looked at the training that they received and we supplemented the training uh, in terms of even such basic things as you know where to lower the safety bar, where to raise the safety bar, um, getting into uh, a higher level of detail than we had previously. So some of it is learning from experiences that you've got as well, and uh, and going back to your training programs and constantly modifying them as you need to. I think it is a a um another really good question and training I'm sure you know we would all say the same thing training is absolutely essential I think you know there's various ways to do it and and um, different levels that are required for different for different job skills so there's always that minimum required training and and tracking and I would say you know I, I think another piece of it is what we have found is you can't just train at the beginning of the year and then expect that to be enough throughout the rest of the season so retraining you know sometime usually after the holidays after we've gone through the, the busy period but retraining going back and, and looking at um, and 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 not always waiting for something to happen but just going back and retraining and doing refresher trainings and things like that and then that's specific on the job training 
And then we've even done some, um, you know, for us being such a large company and, and having kind of a lot of exposure and, and risk because we've got so many employees and, and so many resorts, you know, even basic kind of trainings and things. So like in order to drive any of our company vehicles, there's a, there's what we call a green driver training that people have to go through and get signed off on. And, you know, it's basically like a driver's test where you would assume if someone has a driver's license that they actually, you know, know how to drive. And um, I would say we don't, we don't take anything for granted and we do all of our own training and we track it and we put a lot of that, um, we put a lot of the onus on training to our members as well so that they're active in the training, they're active in tracking it, it's not just our health and safety folks, um, but it, but that really takes it to the point where everyone at the resort owns training, um, sorry, owns safety, and that's another kind of culture piece for us too in terms of moving from that independent to interdependent culture where health and where safety is not just the responsibility of either the risk department or the health and safety manager. It's it's every it's my responsibility, it's every one of my senior team's responsibility and it's all of my managers' responsibility. We all own safety and so we look at training the same way um and, and tracking for training. Yeah, to to maximize training, um we looked at um all the myriad of risks that we have on the mountains and we prioritized them and what we found was that for new hires and people that um, were entering the industry, we were overwhelming them. And then for returning employees, we were boring them. And so we started saying like, well, what can we do to change that? And the first thing we did was we simplified our training significantly. And one of the fundamental things that we did was um, we, we told people to do stuff slower, which was counterintuitive, but we found that in areas where we were seeing high levels of injury, uh, employees were sometimes rushing, and that would be, for instance, if there's a lift down, lift maintenance, rushing um, on a snowmobile to get there, or if you were late for any reason um, to meet to get a ski school check-in point, or if patrol was trying to get the mountain open by the opening bell on a powder morning. And that was very effective when we said, really be thinking about what you're doing at a methodical pace versus rushing into it. And the, the model is simply slow as fast, and it actually saved us time in the long run when they were able to avoid um, being out of service. Um, we also started a program, and it, um, it started with ski industry. Um, we looked at examples within the industry, and this was both for lift incidents and for um, workers' comp. And we would um, diagnose them and the, miss the close calls that we had internally as well. But if there was a serious incident somewhere in the industry that we were aware of, um, I use the example of the lift mechanic that was killed in Loveland last year. We diagnosed that one very thoroughly um, to show our teams what, what can happen if you're not paying attention in that particular case. And that has been real life examples um, of stuff, of, of the types of jobs that we're doing have become very effective. And then the last thing we did is we rate risk. And so I would argue that um, a sunburn is less serious than a full burial in an avalanche. And so we have all the different parameters and we concentrate far more emphasis on the higher risk um, issues that may not occur as much, but when they do occur, they're far more severe. And we don't spend very much time on what are very important, but much more manageable injuries, um, hydration and smaller, you know, things, you know, cuts in the um, workshops or tuning skis. And we do concentrate a, the bulk of our training on injuries that are life-changing. Thanks a lot, Rich. I, I, I'd love, this is really interesting, and I'd love to maybe, you know, circle back to one of the original um, thoughts I had at the beginning of, of this, which is the opportunity to kind of, um, you know, share the, the the inner workings of your brain as you think through uh, a challenge or a risk management um, situation um, for the benefit of these mentees who are, you know, uh, early in their leadership careers. So, um, we'll we'll kind of go in our regular order, Kim, not, Kim, Rich, then Nadia, uh, and I'd really love for you to talk a little bit about um, you as a leader. Uh, I, how do you um, how do you define the relationship between risk management and the overall business strategy? Like, 
What, what does your brain do when you have to think about those two things? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, risk management, I think, is an essential component of any business strategy because if we let risks get out of control, then we, we've got bigger, bigger problems. But as has been kind of talked about a little bit on this call, sometimes you do have to have to accept a certain degree of risk to, uh, to have an event or to, to make terrain opening possible or just to have normal ski operations. And so it is constantly, for me, it's a back and forth and it's talking to all of the team members that, that play a part in the decision and, you know, really getting everybody's perspectives on things and then weighing those and trying to, trying to balance all the factors appropriately, which, which can often be a very difficult task. Uh, and it is definitely, uh, you know, a part of all decisions um, based on risk is to, to figure out what the right balance is. So it's, it's ongoing for me. And for me, it involves a lot of uh, communication with other team members and getting other people's perspectives as well. And uh, risk management is not something that's easy, and it doesn't have easy answers, and it's, uh, it's something that you're always going back to day in and day out, and, and maybe modifying your original decisions based on new information uh, or new circumstances. So it's an ongoing process for me, for sure. Rich, would you like to give us a tour of your, of your brain as, as you think about risk management yeah. and strategy? <laughs> and and um, as... If you haven't seen workers' comp costs, um, I suggest you guys look at them because you'll be blown away. And these are dollars that come right out of your bottom line. So there's you can multiply them by whatever your margin is. If you're running a 30% margin, they're three times as expensive as they really are because you have to bring in that much more money. And I, we are weighing it nonstop. And so I'm going to focus in this case on events because um, that's one that is very clear to me and very real. And we host an event called the X Games, and it's for professional athletes, and it's invitational. Um, and we build these courses that are unskiable for 99.9% of the world. But for many years, we were using those as training parks for our local freestyle programs. And I had a child in it, and I was looking at it, and I was like, I, I was so uncomfortable with the with that train, and then putting kids into that onto those jumps that you know 60, 70 feet off the deck, and huge gaps that we, we actually shut it down and we built a whole separate park out in Snowmass, different mountain. We had the luxury to do that, but we do, we no longer hold events outside of the X games on that without, um, you know, very high level athletes. Some mm -hmm. other ones, big mountain competition, same thing. I, I found myself years ago rooting against my son mentally in a big mountain competition in, in snowbird um, because the next run was going to be on a course with mandatory air and i just was like i was cringing at it um fortunately he did get eliminated i didn't have to worry about it in real but i started to think what when if i'm a parent here and this is a competition is that really something that we want to put our kids in and so what we did was we created a venue that we considered as benign as it can be and still be sanctioned from the um free skiing community and we hold the events on that one we do we, we don't have mandatory air and we it's, it has very soft landings and pillow drops that are acceptable in our mind um, we used to hold an event on Aspen Mountain called the 24 hours of Aspen where high-level racers would go for 24 hours as many laps as they could and you could imagine after 13 to 15 hours of downhill racing and you're going 100 miles an hour at night fatigued, we, it was just a matter of time before disaster struck. We just stopped doing that altogether. We no longer hold that event. Um, and the same thing with the um, bike speed events. You see them over in Europe where they try and set the land speed record on bikes on snow. And it just didn't, it, it was such a niche um, business. There was no upside and there was a huge amount of downside and we don't do it anymore. So you're weighing those kinds of things in your mind from a business perspective. And I'd look at, you know, what is the upside? Um, I would argue that Freestyle is pretty big. The X Games are very big. So when you need to have the ability to host it, can you do it in a way that is minimizes risk to your employees and to your participants? Yeah, and and you have to weigh like your brand, right? Too to absolutely. If you know, um, really interesting. Uh, that's great. Uh, 
Nadia? Thanks, yeah, really good comments, and I'll, I'll just try and add on a little bit. And Paul, I was gonna say kind of exactly what you just said about brands, so I think there's a, you know, I think Rich is talking a little bit about, yeah, sort of inherent versus unnecessary risk and, you know, looking at those things where, you know, if it's an unnecessary risk or if it's something that maybe doesn't have a lot of upside. And for us, the way we, we look at a lot of that is, yeah, is from a strategy standpoint, being really clear about our brand and who we are as a resort and, you know, and our our guests and what, you know, who we're looking to attract and where we want to, in what areas we want to grow and things. And so being really clear about our brand because we used to do a lot of um, so some of that kind of not X Games, but we had Vans Triple Crown, and we had the Dew Tour here for a bit, and we and you know we we had a Sean White half pipe, and we had you know a lot of those kind of different events and things that in some cases did not have a lot of upside you know financially for us, and and sometimes the exposure and media value is a little bit unquantifiable. So um, you know, so for us it was you know, making sure we really knew who we were as a brand and as a resort and getting really clear about that and, and operating um, accordingly. And then I think um, from a strategy standpoint, I liked what Rich talked about um, in terms of learnings and, and learning from other resorts and other incidents and things that have happened um, across the industry. And I think that that's, that's actually, you know, a, a strategy as well and, and something that we think about a lot so so anytime anything happens in the industry we also look at it and dissect it and go through it and try and talk with the people involved and things like that and i think that that's i think that similar to what kim said you know safety has to be part of your strategy it's in it's ingrained it's intertwined it's it's all part of it i know you know for us we we go so far as to we create a, a safety uh, strategic plan every year and so we we actually build strategy around safety that that meshes into the rest of our resort and brand strategy. That was episode five of our six episode run of the summit series. And we have one more to go. It's a good one and you don't want to miss it. So be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. Risk management is only one part of leadership. And if you want to evolve your leadership skills and get your team engaged, check out the Peak Navigator Leadership Development Program run by the Summit Series' own Paul Tallner. Learn more at www.saminfo.com slash peak-navigator. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The PodSAM advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintry Mix podcast guy. I am Sarah Bordeaux, and you are listening to PodSAM.